Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Recording in progress. Recording with the one and only Miss Mitzi Perdue, who has helped me make the episodes fly by. I could have sworn you and I were just celebrating episode 600, and now we're at 752. And it's just like that, just by in a blink. But Miss Mitzi Perdue, Renaissance woman, as always, I'll put all the links to your websites and your writings in the, uh, in the description. But we were just actually, for all the new listeners, Mitzi, please introduce yourself. All right, I am Mitzi Perdue. Uh, my latest excitement is I've just finished writing a biography of Mark Victor Hansen, The Chicken Soup for the Song Guy. And this is a guy who is in the Guinness Book of World Records for selling half a billion books. He, there, there, there's no nonfiction writer who sold more books than Mark Victor Hansen with The Chicken Soup for the Soul series. So that's, that's exciting. But the other thing that's on my mind is I'm a past president of the 40,000-member American Agriwomen. And because of that connection, and you know, I talk with, with my fellow past presidents and fellow members all the time, I'm coming up with some uh, worrisome thoughts about food insecurity. Are you up for hearing about that, Tommy? I am 100% up for hearing it. Okay, uh, let's start with, I think, well, it may or may not be widely known, but I think, well, I'm going to quote a UN representative that I read like in the last 24 hours, who thinks that it's perfectly likely that we'll have famine that will affect more than 100 million people. And you know, that immediately raises the question, well, Why? And the answer is, it was bad before COVID-19. COVID-19 has had such an effect on, like, transportation supplies. But then the really big thing that's going on right now, of course, is the war in Ukraine. And uh, if you'll see my background, we're looking at a sunflower, which is Ukraine's national flower. But it's also uh, one of their major exports, and that's cooking oil. Wow. There are, yeah. I didn't know this. Well, between between uh, Ukraine and and Russia, something like forty percent of the world's wheat supply comes from there. In I've heard estimates that the cooking oil, that the edible oils, that of the exporting countries, that that Ukraine supplies seventy percent. And, you know, we, we talk about inflation here, but imagine what it must mean when, you know, inflation comes about, at least in part, when, you know, there are more dollars or there's more money chasing less food. Well, if you suddenly removed as much as 40% of the food, of the food grains in, in the world from the world market, there are people who are not going to get the calories that they need. 
and the countries that are particularly affected, they're particularly North African countries. Or let, let's go with and Middle East. I mean, there's, let's see, Libya, Syria, Iraq, Iran. Afghanistan. Uh, yeah. Um, and to some extent, even India. And India is a special case because it's not that they're importing so much food from from a war-torn region. It's that they that their biggest support uh, supply of fertilizer comes from Russia, and that's that's being banned. And are you aware that just as recently as last Wednesday, that that Ukraine simply said we're not going to export any of the food that we do grow? So you know this is bad, bad, bad. But that's not the end of the problem. Uh, Transportation's a huge problem. But well, let's stick with, with food for a moment more uh, and, and the actual planting. If you're a farmer, at least on a, a, this, uh, if you're above subsistence, you would really like to have abundant fertilizer. And if you're, if you're at a scale where your farming is mechanized, you know, with tractors and combines and harvesters and so on, you need you need fuel to run your equipment and that's getting more and more expensive and as for the fertilizer what do we do when when the fertilizer shortage is going to be felt throughout the world because the biggest exporter is russia and guess what the ammonium the ammonium nitrate that that goes into weapons isn't going into fertilizer and then they're 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 banning exports of it. Uh, so imagine if, if you cut the fuel and you can you can cultivate your field and, and you can plant it, um, you're gonna get vastly diminished crops. And then there's the question of well you if you've got a nice big crop of wheat, which you won't because you haven't had the fertilizer or the pesticides, but you want to take this off the field and, and take it to market. The, the the trucks aren't there. But supposing you even get past that problem, and I'm talking you're a Ukrainian now, then you've by some miracle you've got a crop and you you're able to transport it to a port. Oh, according to what I've read, you know, a lot of the ports, the ships won't enter them because they can't get insurance. It's a war area. In fact, I even read that Cargill, and we're talking a couple of weeks ago, that Cargill had had one of its, that's the big grain mm-hmm. uh, thing, that Car- Cargill had one of its ships uh, attacked. Uh, it had a rocket attack. Jeez. And so now now the ships don't want to go in there. They can't get, uh, they can't get insurance. And some of the major ports that matter are mined. Uh, you know, this just gets catastrophically worse the longer the war drags on. And uh, so what's the answer? I have a betting pool going on. I invite you to join it. How long Putin remains in, in power? I just had this conversation the other day. I think he'll be, based on nothing, just my armchair expertise, I think he'll be removed internally by July. By July. Uh-huh. Okay, by the way, I listened to the podcast. It was with Claire Lopez, right? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, um, you know, I devour everything that she says. Um, I'm, I'm a Lopez fan. In fact, I'm kind of embarrassed to be sharing your screen time with somebody so eminent that whom I admire so much. Now you, but, now you know how I feel. Time. Now you know how I feel with every guest I have on. <laughs> I okay, but putting that aside, uh, okay, so you're you're by July. Uh, I. Well, one bet that I had with the person for the betting pool has already passed. So <laughs> no shame in losing because somebody's already lost. Uh, a lot of people are saying four to six weeks. But I don't see how he survives because the amount of damage that he's done to his country. I mean, I, I mean, I guess I, I look at like, a, I guess you're right now. I mean, think about all the attempts on Hitler's life. But even when the country was going just finished his hardliners still stayed with him in the bunker. So I could see, I could see the hardliners staying with him to the end, just out of delusion, out of just pure patriotism, loyalty. I think by July 31st, he'll be removed by some overwhelming force, but I could see Um, him holding on. He's, I mean, he's Russian. I'm I'm kind of expecting him to be Jeffrey Epstein. You think go to jail and then get, get cracked or you find them hanging it looks as if he committed suicide it might be he might actually he might do it i don't i don't know i don't see putin committing so yeah no no I, I could see him getting epstein i was just trying to think would he actually do it i don't think he would i think he'd rather go out well i don't know i think he genuinely loves russia so have I don't, you heard of our, our studied narcissistic collapse excuse me aha you haven't narcissistic collapse no all right somebody who's a total malignant malevolent narcissist they feed on admiration and love and success and when it's totally taken from them suicide sometimes is the result you know if if your whole life is built around people admiring you Mm -hmm. and being center stage um well i mean who knows but tell me that's what you and I talk about, these things that maybe you're not supposed to talk about. Yeah. But I, I could see narcissistic collapse happening to you because imagine your whole life you've you've done whatever it takes to prevail mm-hmm. and you succeeded, and then suddenly just could you fail more more drastically than he's failing? I think he's definitely a ruthless uh, thug, but I also think and again and let me preface this by saying Hitler loved his country. So this doesn't mean it's some, you know, you're clear of charges. But you know, he talks about 1991, the dissolution of the Soviet Union being the most tragic experience of his life. And I think with uh, Georgia or Sesha or whatever it was, with Crimea and now with, you know, with uh, Ukraine or parts of Ukraine, he's definitely trying to do, in my opinion, some sort of restoration to glory. So that is based out of love for his country. Again, Hitler loved his country too. So it's not. So I don't see him going into all out nuclear war because ultimately that would be the destruction of Russia or whatever's left of it. And I don't think he wants that. I think if enough people within his own country started to hate him, I think that might lead to narcissistic collapse. If that's a guy who, although bloodthirsty and wants power, it's also based out of he loves his country. I think if the country turned on him, he might start to hate himself. 
Well, let's circle back to food again, because that's the only area that I have any expertise on. And I don't have a great deal of expertise on that. But I am a past president of American Agri-Women, the oldest and largest farm women's organization. And I do talk with knowledgeable people. And the, the problems that I've been describing for the, the global food supply, they're going to affect, they're going to affect Russia as well. Mm-hmm. And hungry people become cranky people. I mean, no, part of famine is when the food isn't there. And part of it is when you don't have the money to buy it. I mean, almost by definition, you think that famine means there's not enough food. But in the definitions that I've been studying, true famine involves, I'll I'll get technical for a moment, almost a dictionary definition of of famine is where a third of the family, uh, sorry, a third of the country doesn't have, or the region doesn't have adequate calories where where starvation is imminent. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a big part of the definition. But another part is that those same people, they have no way of earning the money to, to buy the food. So when you put the two together, uh, catastrophe, and I can see that, that Russia, its economy is tanking so rapidly. I could see food shortages happening there where, you know, where, where the ruble just isn't buying what they need. Um, and when there are famines, regimes change. It's like that quote, any society is only ever four meals from uh, collapse. Go a whole day without eating and then miss the first meal the next day. The most well-oiled, cultured, 2022 downtown Manhattan. Nobody eats four meals. Instant barbarism. I mean, instant just shirking of modernity. And yeah, that would especially, and it's one thing if it's global famine. It's a whole other thing if there's one country and you're looking around you're like, Everyone else is eating, and we're not because this guy wants to go bomb this city, and now I don't get to eat. I mean, yeah, you're going to, again, in all of my geopolitical expertise, which amounts to zero, I would imagine that's probably what it is, is it's not, it's not, you know, you might go along with your leader, even if you're not 100% behind them, just out of loyalty, or, you know, it's the, you respect the, the office, right? Maybe you don't like the president, but you respect the office. And you get to a point where you're not eating. It's just the most. Or how about your babies aren't eating? Well, that too. Yeah. Or that could be another thing. You could go like, I'm a man. I'll I'll tough it out. But yeah, your baby, your pregnant wife isn't eating. Yeah. I think some primal instinct. You become murderous. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or are you going to flee? I want to add another just kind of piece of gossip that I don't, I'd love to know how widely it's known. I know it because being in agriculture, I hang out with people who talk about agriculture. But China is just buying up food on a scale that is unprecedented. I was talking with one guy who's a grain dealer mm-hmm. who's saying, you know, we're getting rich because whatever we've got, they'll buy and they'll outbid everybody else. And that he's just, he's, he said, we're talking like half a year ago. Somebody's, give me a second. Okay. Uh, the, uh, the, this is information, I said half a year ago, maybe it's three months ago. He was telling me, this is a grain dealer, uh, who I know just because of having a background in agriculture. 
he was telling me that even before what's going on right now, he said that China was buying on such an unprecedented scale that if they focused all their purchases on one country, us, they could buy out our entire grain supply for our, our entire production. Well, they're not buying it just from us. They're, they're getting it every possible place they can. But what does China know that, what are they preparing for where, where they're buying on such a scale? Answer. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think. Yeah. I don't think they know anything. Something, something is, is going on with grain supplies. And that reminds me of something else. I have a friend. Uh, he comes from, I think it's Arizona. His roots are agriculture, but he came, became a public speaker. And he was giving a talk recently in Saskatchewan, recently meaning last summer. And as he's driving along to, or being driven by his host to wherever he's going to give his speech, he passes all these lush fields of, I'm going to guess wheat, but I'm not quite sure which crop it was. But anyway, my friend, let's call him Peter to protect the guilty. Peter uh, turns to his host and says, oh, what absolutely beautiful munitions factories you have. And the guy says, what do you mean we're passing a wheat field? And the guy said, you watch. Grain is going to be a geopolitical weapon as much as guns. Oh, well, sure. And, uh, yeah, okay, here's another concern I have. I hope there's somebody in the United States who's looking at all our grain sales and are we doing what's in our best interest? And I, I don't want to shut off grain, grain sales globally, but I'd sure like to take a good hard look at the sales to China. I don't think China necessarily knows anything that we don't. I think with all the first world powers, they're probably going to have, for the most part, similar intelligence. You might have some that are a little more advanced on the workings of other nations. But in terms of like trends that things are going in, I don't think China necessarily has this I don't think they I bet look, they do. I don't I think they do. What, what, what if I'm Mr. Xi and I'm thinking, eh, this is a time when the United States is at a point of unprecedented weakness, and they're probably not going to stay that weak. So maybe sure. if I'm going to plant something, I ought to do it soon while he's still president. And if I want to do that, and I'm a country that's not grain self-sufficient, sure. maybe I better stockpile. I think they, they, also, they might know something that we don't know. They also have five people for every one of us. So you have to remember that by definition, just to even have as much food as us, they're going to buy 500% of what we buy. Yeah, but what they're buying now on a scale that I'm told is completely unprecedented, that they've they've never been in a state where, first of all, they're buying so much, and second, they almost don't seem to care what they pay for it. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's in that sense that I wonder if they know something about their own intentions that we don't know. I would say that by that definition, we're, we're doing the exact same thing with oil. America has about a 500-year supply of oil in the United States. And for whatever reason, we won't tap it. And I don't believe the whole, it's about Green New Deal. I think there's a military strategy to that. You can import oil all over the world. Once war starts, you're not getting ships across. You have to waste so many resources uh, chaperoning them that my logic is, is you'd buy you buy, let's say I have a farm and I know war's coming. I'm going to buy food from everywhere else in the world like China's doing. 
and the people at home are going to say, you know, like the gas prices are too high, the corn price is too high, and I'm looking at the big picture. I'm going, when war comes, money won't mean anything, just like it never does. It's just fiat. We'll have the hard supply of grain, and then we can start farming our own stuff, and you'll be happy we have our own stuff. That's my logic is that's why we're not drilling for oil, despite the fact that, I mean, what are we doing? We're willing to pay any price for it, $5, $6, but nobody actually doesn't go to the gas station. You still go. It doesn't matter. So if China knows something, we know the exact same thing. And I can only imagine we're saying, well, oil is more important than wheat. We can make our own wheat and we can drill our own oil. Might as well pay through the ass to the UAE or Venezuela or whoever. And when the bullets start flying, then we'll tap all our, because Biden, to his credit, did did clear 9,000 drilling uh, permits. That's more than anyone else has, if I'm correct. Yeah, but then how fast can can those be put into effect? I would imagine. Yeah, I've got that. my nice permit. Yeah. Uh, how long does it take? You know, first of all, you don't know that it's going to pay off. Yeah. You well, you probably have a pretty good idea before you start. But, but before you can actually start selling the stuff, what's the lead time? Yeah. Well, with wartime production, I would look at, I would much rather have some oil fields that we got to build some plants around and you could guard one field on U.S. soil versus like, hey, the U.S. military, the mighty military machine, it runs on oil. Do we want to be chaperoning for every oil ship? Do we really want to be uh, using one destroyer and a couple whatever, you know, uh, uh, aircraft guarding it to bring all the oil from the UAE all the way over to there, all the way over to here? Or would you rather just have to ramp up production like the military can do? And start drilling in our own oil fields, and it's in the middle of the U.S. So now, an, now an enemy has to come in and invade us to stop what we're doing here. I'd much rather pay through the ass to get oil from everywhere else in the world, and then in wartime production. I mean, how quickly can it happen privately? I don't know. Come wartime production, I mean, look at World War II. Look what FDR did. When it comes down to survival, you can flip it on because there's nothing else to do. There is no other thing. It's your your private company doesn't matter. We're in the global war. You're just going to have everyone, you know, you'd probably be conscripted to go construct these oil, like oil wells. So I would much rather, again, I would much rather, if my, if my little, if war breaks out in, in, in Maryland and I'm in my little apartment, up until, if I see war coming, I'm going to spend every penny I have on buying my neighbor's food, I'm buying it from Walmart. I might be spending $20 on a gallon of milk or let's say non-perishables, granola bars. Because when war comes, the dollar bills will mean nothing. I'll be able to light a fire and keep myself warm. I'm going to buy all those and never once touch the closet of food that I have already. Because you want to maximize what you have and also take it from everyone else. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a delicate game of musical chairs. China's doing it with grain. And that's not that's not not stupid. They also have five times our population, so that's a much bigger thing. We're doing. Uh, but on top of that, they're not food sufficient. Exactly, I mean, we are. We are, and we're buying oil. They buy food. That's great. If we have the oil to power our military machine, fuck you, China. We're coming in and taking it. What do you have to stop us? Cool. You've stockpiled grain. We've stockpiled petroleum. Like uh, you know, Eisenhower, the 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 logistical master. I mean, armies run on food and fuel 
nothing matters. You can have all the tanks in the world. If they're not full of gas, and again, if your soldiers aren't full of food, it doesn't matter. I would take the U.S. military with a 500-year oil supply over everything else because once your your oil supply is ready and your military is ready, then you can just go take whatever you want. When push comes to shove, you can just go take whatever you want. Cool, China, you have all the grain in the world. Can you power your tanks? No? Welcome. Here's America. We're going to come in and take it. And that's brutal, but that's also war. That's that's the only thing that matters. So Actually, I think I'm, I'm going to put cybersecurity above all that because... Even that, one EMP, it doesn't matter. Knock it all out. If you have a bunch of machines that just run... If you have a bunch of analog old machines that just run on gas, none of it matters. By the way, I had a question that I would have loved to ask Mr. Peter Fry. Uh, if you're going to have an EMP... Is it the sort of thing like where it affects 100 square miles or does it affect the whole country? More than that. It's what's it's like what's below it. So like the first shots of a nuclear war wouldn't even be there's ground burst, which is where a nuclear bomb hits the ground and blows up. And that's how you destroy bunkers. The kind of bigger ones, thermonuclear weapons, you want to burst those at like 5000 feet. That's how you kill the greatest possible population. But before you even do that, you're going to be bursting them at about 300 miles. It's because the EMP... Oh, and and does, does, that, does that do in the whole country? It destroys everything that it touches. And not, not, that, not that it turns it off. It's done. It destroys the phone. You can no longer plug this in. It doesn't matter. It's now just a brick to hit somebody with. That's why all of the U.S. military bunkers are... Uh, it's, it's called um, hardened against EMP, which is really just a copper sheathing. Even just metal will do it. And that's also why all the military bunkers have like three and four sets of antennas that will come out of the ground after nuclear war. Nuclear war blows up everything, all your communications towers. They have silos that will rise up and it'll be an antenna. And those can be destroyed too because they have several, they're, they're expecting several waves of nukes. So again, that's all well and good. But cybersecurity yeah, doesn't really matter. well and good. Tony. Well, no. Well, I mean, in terms of like, no one no, has no, a. I'm... Yeah, I know. No one has a has a monopoly on EMPs. It, it doesn't matter if you can detonate a nuke, you have an EMP. So cybersecurity matters in the same way that money matters. Money matters so long as you can still buy oil and grain. But once the bullets start flying, they're just pieces of paper. The cybersecurity, cyber, it's all real until war starts, and then the only things that are going to work are hardened bunkers. I think but so, so that EMP, it, it's continent wide. Yeah. Is I mean, it, it going to fry anything Mexico. that hits? Yeah. Anything that's in like a direct, directly like a, like a conical Think of, I mean, here's the earth. The EMP is up here and it bursts. It's just, you know, whatever it hits, the farther it up. I would imagine there's some sort of attenuation, but it's like the sun, right? I mean, the sun in the early morning and the evening, you're not going to get, even a pale person like me won't get sunburned before 8 a.m. or after like 5 p.m. Because it's the, it's, the sun has to go through so much more atmosphere versus when it's directly over you, that's when you get fried. I think it's the same with EMP, but that doesn't matter because there's tens of thousands. It, it's Numbers aren't a problem. If you can't hit everyone, then you just launch two. You launch 10, you launch 50, you launch 100. I would take yeah, a few. Yeah, if I were a bad guy, I'd sure as heck launch several. Hey, no, you launch hundreds. You launch hundreds. The things that really matter, the missiles, 
and the the bunkers, those are all hardened against the MPs. Plus, they're also underground, so it doesn't really matter. Okay, and what about what about our nuclear warships? I hope they're out in the ocean somewhere now, and not in corn. Oh, they're always out. I don't think we. Ever, I don't think we ever have more than like one aircraft, and I could be wrong on that. I don't think we ever have more than like one or two at home. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that because some source that I heard was saying that it takes like three days to get the submarine out of port. Probably. And by three days, I mean maybe get the people who are manning it to get in and whatever else. Yeah, but they can also stay underwater for months and months and months. It's at the risk of kind of falling. I thought it was Peter Fry who was who was on your show who was saying that that a nuclear sub in port just can't reach. I don't, I don't the, no. I've had on guys that have operated on nuclear subs though. Uh, John Rennie has been on here a couple times. Um, yeah, no, they're. Going back to Peter Fry, who was saying that we're more vulnerable than we think we are. I, I don't know Peter Fry. Oh, oh, wait! Then somebody was talking about him. He's the he's the world's EMP expert. Oh, I think I've tried to get him on. Um, actually, General Spalding, who I've had on here before, I actually started his own company. And it's all about EMP shielding, and that's the guy that wrote the book Stealth War about China. I'm trying to remember the name of his of his company. Um, well, then I've got to get you Peter Fry because he's he's exquisitely knowledgeable. Now, my podcasts are protected by by EMP shielding. I, I, I bought a bunch of like EMP like bags and I put them in shells within shells within shells. So I'll be killed. I'll be destroyed. But long after the war is settled, someone will find my gun safe and they will find my podcast and it will be the only recorded history. It'll be the uh, library of Alexandria and no one will know what else is real. So they just have to take my own regaling of stories as what history is. <laughs> but the trouble is they're, they're all on some kind of, I don't know, hard disk or hard drive. Uh, will we even have the technology to access it? Eventually. Eventually someone will. Or not. Or it's just lost in the ether and it doesn't matter. But at the risk of... Fa- I want you to be the Library of Alexandria. Uh, it, it's, that was kind of a bad analogy because that was destroyed. But it's kind of like... Well, <laughs> well yeah, it's... but. At the risk of like making the same mistake they made in 1914, saying there can't possibly be a world war, we're all too interconnected. It was the original mutual assured destruction. 31 years before there was an A-bomb, they knew that we had the powers. They knew that nations, you know, there was trains, biplanes were a thing, artillery sh- artillery had advanced. Machine guns? Yeah, yeah, Maxim machine guns. They knew that we could really screw up the world, but their mutual assured destruction was... They had, they had, I mean, Otto von Bismarck set things up to where there were so many interlocking alliances that people were saying, like, we can't go to war because if this guy attacks them, all these nations have to defend them, which will cause them to happen. And then they won't get their grains and they won't get their opium and we won't get our tea. They would just say, don't worry about it. It can't happen. What well, happened? And the world went mad. Now, with World War II... We weren't dumb enough to think it couldn't happen again because it was 30 years in the rearview mirror. And But by the time World War II ended, we actually started to go, all right, so as we're in World War One, we all told each other this can't possibly happen, and it did happen. With World War II, we went, this actually can't happen because there won't be a winner. World War One, it was unthinkable, but someone could still maybe scrounge out. Someone, One country might lose $20 million, and the other might lose $19 million, and they technically win. 
with A-bombs, there was no actual winning. They start to understand radiation and fallout, and they're like, we, no, no one will win. So we have that kind of, and that's been mostly true since August 9th, August 9th, 1945. And we've had, just for the U.S., we've had right, Korea, Vietnam, Grenada, Desert Storm, Iraq, Afghanistan, all the drone strikes we're doing. And we have had war, but in terms of total percentage of deaths and uh, gross number of deaths and percentage of deaths, it's been going down since 1945. For the first time in all of human history, it's been going down nonstop. It's still bad, but there is no total war. So on one hand, there is an argument to say that, no, it's working. We can't have total war. But I fear that we're getting complacent in this idea that we can't do it. There's mutual shared destruction. We've got NATO and we've got the Sino alliances and it can't happen guys. Plus we've got nuclear war. It's going to be over the same, the smartest people in 1914 were smoking their pipes in their ivory towers going, don't worry child. Like war can't happen. I don't know. I'm looking at right now. And on one hand, I'm like, there are nuclear submarines. Everything is electronic. Our entire world is based digitally a couple EMPs and we are back to the relative stone age. It can't happen. Um, but what can't happen has already happened. It's happened in 1914. So I don't know. I don't know. That being said, I think mutual assured destruction will ultimately win because for the first time since 1945 till now, in the most beautiful sense of the golden rule, do unto others what you want done to yourself, it actually applies militarily. All of human history... You know, we say, be a pacifist, love each other. But the reality is, if some guys show up to your village with some spears, they don't care. They don't care. They're just going to kill you and take everything. For the first time ever, for the last 77 years, pacifism is almost enforced with the iron fist. If you shoot up a nuke, a nuke's coming back at you. If you don't shoot up a nuke, no nuke's coming back at you. There are workarounds. You can drone cities and you can bomb Kiev. But there's no nuclear Armageddon because all these guys and all the oligarchs and all the rich billionaires, the guys, the deep states of these respective countries, they don't want war because that means no more prostitutes on 600 foot yachts with cocaine and caviar. They 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 want to keep playing. They're on a playground. And if we have nuclear war, they don't get their playground anymore. Which gets right back to my betting pool. Sorry for that rant, Mitzi. Okay, and, and you're just for the record. July is when when we think that that Putin will. I said um, by July thirty first. That's what I. But I'm July starting to think 30. that it, I'm starting to think that's too long. Now that we talk this out, yeah, I'm starting to think it's too long. I think he'll be ousted by the end of April. I'm gonna adjust my. I'm gonna cut it back three months. Wow. Uh, and stipulating that absolutely nobody knows, which is why it's a betting pool. Sure. Uh, I have, I've heard a lot of people say four weeks, and a lot of people say six weeks. So uh, it looks you're like right in the middle. I think it's going to be, there's going to be a moment when Russia decides they don't want Putin, and then there's going to be a little bit of lag time to when they can actually get rid of him, you know? Yeah, personally, I bet you that a lot of them have thought right now we don't want him. Oh, 100%. It's got, it's got to reach a critical mass, though. It's like a shockwave. You see the explosion, and then you hear the sound. I think they're going to conclude Putin has to go, and then it's going to take a, like, you know, like a week to actually do it. 
By the way, what do you make of those amazing photographs of him at a conference table separated by, it looks to me like. <laughs> I'm told that's because he's scared of COVID. Well, no, that's BS. They've always done that. And it's so the security has, has we don't do it in the United States, but I mean, in countries where you have to rule with an iron fist, you always meet at a distance because on the off chance you decide that you're just going to rush Putin, the security wants at least some time. I was actually a friend and I were looking at a photo the other night of him and whoever the French, is it Macron? Macron? Yeah. They're at this table. It's not one of those like mile long tables, but it's still like 30 feet at either end. And we were yeah. trying to break it apart. We were like, this is so absurd. They, they probably can't hear each other. Like, what is the what is the purpose of this? And we realized there was actually a third chair. So it's Putin on one end, Macron on the other end, 20, 25 feet apart. And there's actually a third chair. And it's slightly smaller than the other two chairs. It's not as ornate, but it's like three feet from Putin. And we we do... Excuse me? Translator? No, we, we deduced it's a power move. Putin's saying, come closer and we can talk. But you have uh, to move and you're going to be in a smaller chair. Now, that's based on nothing. But I was looking at it. It says, like, we can talk, but, you know, you're coming to my house. You know, you're going to take your shoes off kind of thing. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. It could be nothing at all. I have no idea. But I don't know. I think he's receding farther and farther. I think there are going to be a lot of great books written about this in like 30 years. Well, speaking of great books, let me tell you about my great book. Nice, nice segue. <laughs> I thought it was Be- brilliant. Beautiful. I give, it a, I give it a 10 out of 10. I'll hold up my <laughs> 10, 10. Okay. Oh, now that we have our segue, it's not out until May, but Mark Victor Henson is doing something so cool. And it's, uh, it's something that I hope spreads. It's uh, now, you know, just to remind you, this is the person who sold half a billion books. And then his story is so interesting because Chicken Soup for the Soul, which he's the co-author of, it was turned down by 144 different publishers. They spent they spent a year and a half trying to find a publisher and by, they hired you know, a super duper agent who after a few months told them uh, you're fired because nobody wants it and the title is stupid. Can you imagine hanging in through 144 rejections? Yeah. Oh. But now now I will jump to the thing that he's doing now that I think is so cool. You know that the blood supply for the United States is kind of the critical point because for two years, one of their, one of their larger sources of donors were blood drives from universities or from businesses which kind of like went by the wayside because of COVID. So Mark is doing something, and I'm part of it, and I even write about it in the book. Imagine, that was a stretch for you, I'm sure, but imagine that you are a chiropractor. There's 77,000 of them, and there are 25 million uh, visits of people to chiropractors a month. Mark has suggested that the chiropractors to celebrate their 125th anniversary. Actually, it's kind of me who suggested it, but Mark went along with it. What if chiropractors write to all their inactive patients and say, you can come in for a free adjustment uh, if you'll donate a pint of blood. And we're already working on a 
website that will track all of this. And then I will give you a copy of the book that's normally going to sell for $24.95. That's what it will sell for an Amazon. I'll give you a digital uh, copy free. And the hope is that we that we managed to get I think it could. I think billion could donations. I think that could work. I mean, 25 million patients, let's say even 1% of them say yes. Just be, Because who, who doesn't want to come in for a free adjustment? Especially if they're already, like I've never done it. I bet, I, I think going to a chiropractor would be cool. I've never done it though. But if you had people who already do use it, they are customers. I mean, 1% of 25, well, 10% would be 2.5 million. So even that would be, even if 1%, super pessimistic. That's still to be 250,000 units, right? That's, and that's a lot of lives saved. Because as it is right now, there are, there are operations that are put off because there isn't enough blood. Yeah. I think and, and say you're, you're a somewhat rural hospital and a woman has a really tough delivery. I know of one recently where it was eight pints needed to keep her alive. Uh, and you don't have eight pints. I mean, these, these donations will save lives. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant idea, Nancy. Uh, how, what what made you choose chiropractors? Uh, I chose chiropractors partly because, well, of personal friends and then an awareness that, um, that they need the love. And and I, I did talk it over with a woman who's who's head of the chiropractic foundation who said that she thought that they'd go along with this and love it. So why not? And, and Mark Victor Hansen has close relationships with them because over probably a 30 or 40 year period, he's spoken with many at many of their conventions. He's addressed their colleges. He's, you know, his relationship with that, you know, they trust him. Mitzi, when are you going to run for office? As soon as never. I think because I, I figure that I, you know, I'm, I'm going to guess that you're placed right now where you can do the absolute most good. And I'm kind of thinking that maybe I am too. That might be the case. That, that is kind of how I look at this. I think I'm probably. Well, I, I don't think, you, I, I think there, there are many people who can take the place of a politician. I think there are very few people who are better than Joe Rogan, and that would be Tommy Kerrigan. Oh, you. It's an endless, it's an, <laughs> Deal with it. It's an endless love fest. Um, <laughs> well, we've still got five more minutes, so predictions. What is your, what is your, uh, what is your bet in the betting pool? Oh, no, nobody's put me in the spot yet, but I'll, I think I'll go for see, March, April, end of April. You taking my? I mean, the pressures have to be just unimaginable. Are you taking my spot? All right, we'll we'll, we'll split all these wonderful um, prizes that come our way in the pool. I think I was gonna. Oh, I meant to ask. So they fired a hypersonic missile the other day, right? So over Mach five, and I think this one allegedly went Mach ten, called the Kinzhal, K I N Z A H L, which means dagger. Hypersonics are like you know, kind of the next destabilizing weapon in the world. The last big one being ICBMs from the 50s. But the Kinzhal hypersonic weapons are the bleeding edge. Like the United States has yet to disclose whether or not they have one. I mean, we... I, What's I, your bet? Do you think we do? Oh, 
100%. The Kinzhal supposedly went Mach 10. China has the Dongfang 14, which I think goes Mach 14, which are impressive. But it's 2022. Summer 2008, we launched the HTV2 Falcon, which went Mach 20. This was, That was 14 years ago. And the idea that we just went, well, that's that, and scrapped it for 14 years, I, I, don't, I don't believe that. Um, why, why is it to our advantage not to admit that we've got it? Well, secrecy is always the best currency in war. Do you, if, so if you're about to go attack the United States, how sure are you that hypersonic doesn't exist? I don't know. If you tell me, on the other hand, if, if you want a deterrence, you you want the I don't think the bad guys to know. I think the but, but I agree. Uncertainty is the absolute best, which is why I miss Donald Trump because he understood something that I studied in college uh, fifty years ago, more than fifty years ago, um, that you absolutely want the other side not to be able to count on how you're going to respond. Yeah. You know, if they if if they know how you're going to respond, then you can be played. Yeah. And Donald Trump, bless him, understood that. It's like what the comedian Tim Dillon said. He was Trump was so unpredictable. If he was in office right now, there are equal chances that he would sanction the hell out of Russia, even worse than Biden, and that he might actually just start bombing Ukraine with Russia. And no one would actually know which one he was going to do. <laughs> exactly. But that's the perfect position yeah, it's insanity. It's insanity. But so, but the the point of me saying that is, he fired a hypersonic missile. It was not, it was not nuclear tipped, which is really the benefit of using it. And he, they just use it to attack a building, which you could do with cheap artillery shells from nineteen eighteen. It was clearly a, it was a shot across the bow to NATO, saying if you come in, we have yeah. these. I think it was an act of desperation. That's I, first. I looked at it as a flex, and now I'm looking at it as he's he's. He's emptying his his arsenal quickly. I don't know why. I just think that's what it was. I don't think it was. I bet that might have been one of a handful that they have that are operational. That's what I think it was. And furthermore, now go real conspiracy. I think it might have meant to be nuclear tipped. And maybe the generals kind of did a silent coup. And now, now, not by now, Putin doesn't know what to do. This is, that's just all wild speculation. But I bet that kind of thing's happening right and left. Oh well, that's the thing is that might have been he went. Oh no, like that was supposed to be nuclear. I don't know. I have no idea. Maybe that's why they were originally trying to shell those nuclear power plants because maybe Putin just really wanted destruction. And the the generals and the oligarchs, who all like their palaces, they all like their Rolls Royces. No one gets to play the game. No one gets to be in a penthouse or in French Polynesia on spring break if the world is a radioactive hell. I think you might already be having guys in the Russian, I guess, elite circles who are... They're figuring out how to do it. They are. That's just a fact. Putin's giving the orders and they're not complying. I don't know. And I think if if, if that's happening, I think that we know that. And that's why you don't see us going in and going full on war because we know it's we know it's a paper bear. 
And so we're by the way, both of us have um, things that we are. I know, to. I know, and I'm a minute late, and I'm sure my guest is going to be arriving any second because I'm a terrible host. I'm always late, as you saw today, as every guest sees every day. I'm always late, but Tommy, we love you no matter what. You can do no wrong. But I don't want to play for mine either. Okay. Miss Mitzi Purdue, I love you. I put all your books in the description, all your links in the description, all that good stuff, and we will absolutely do another episode soon. Thank you so much. I love it. Oh, wait. I'll tell you the date that I want when Mr. Putin goes to his great reward. Well, you want that the next podcast date? Yeah. Okay. I'll bump everybody else and we'll go. We'll we'll go. We'll do it. Drink beverages. We'll do it. And, and invite everybody to join us. In fact, I want to invite, hey, uh, anybody who's listening to Tommy's podcast, you're invited to my party when Putin goes to his great reward. And the way to get to it is because it's going to be on Tommy's podcast. You're invited. The Putin party. We'll start drinking at 10 The Putin party. We'll, we'll clink. Yeah, we'll all get drunk. There, there's, there's an admission price for this party. You'll have to have an adult beverage no, in you your You have hand. to have a breathalyzer. Well, yeah. You, you, certain, well, you, we'll you we'll can't come it. in right now. You're not drunk enough. It's uh, <laughs> Miss Mitzi Purdue. I think it's a brilliant idea. But it is. It is. You are correct. I do have to run. I have another guest. Okay. Bye bye. All right, right Mitzi. So, thank you so much. Take care, everybody. Peace.